0: tired of blogs. (laughs) Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. The intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the Left Bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 21st day of January 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking to James Moore, the author of a book about presidential advisor Karl Rove called Bush's Brain. Moore talks to us about how he tried to get on an airplane after the last presidential election and found out he was on a no-fly watch list. We'll also be talking to librarian Christopher Waldrop about the latest on the Google Book Search program, as well as Google's expansion into China, where it has been helpfully sharing client records with the Chinese government. And we'll hear from poet Hal Sirowitz, as well as our UK correspondent Mark Thwaite. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, the public has spoken out on the issue of James Frey, Revelations of gross, I mean really gross, fabrication in Frey's book A Million Little Pieces continued this week, with the team from the New York Times Freakonomics column uncovering that the book's reportage of the suicide of the character named Lily was most likely made up. That's right, there was no Lily. Frey's publisher, Nantelais, told Sheila Kolhatkar of the New York Observer that Frey was lying again when he said on the Larry King show that he had just done what his publisher told him to do. And what with the president caught in an illegal spying campaign and Osama bin Laden coming out of the closet and a right-wing ideologue being named to the Supreme Court and nothing in general to talk about, the subject of James Frey remained a leading topic in newspapers and on talk shows. But the public, as I say, finally had its say on the matter. Voting with its pocketbook, as it is wont to do, Frey's book plummeted on Amazon.com's bestseller list from the number one position to uh, number two, and Nielsen Bookscan reported that the book sold a mere 122,000 copies, plummeting from the previous week's sales of 145,000 copies, leaving it as the bestselling book so far this year. Thus spake Zarathustra. Meanwhile, back in Oprah Winfrey land, just days after Winfrey's strangely orchestrated call-in to the Larry King show during James Frey's appearance there to say that she agreed with him, emotional truth was all that mattered in a nonfiction book, Winfrey announced that her next selection for her book club was Elie Wiesel's Holocaust memoir, Night. New York Times reporter Ed Wyatt immediately immediately uncovered a blatant lie in the Nobel Prize-winning author's memoir. Wiesel had reported he was nearly 14 when he entered the Auschwitz death camp during World War II. Wyatt revealed a new translation of the book selected for the Winfrey program changed that to 15. Wyatt was still on the story at week's end. Rumors that he had the 85-year-old Weasel in the back room and was heard screaming at him, remember what we did to Wen Ho Lee, could not be confirmed by broadcast time. As for Nan Talese, who just last week was standing by her author James Frey, as mentioned, she told Sheila Kalhatkar in this week's New York Observer that she, quote, almost collapsed when she heard Frey say on the now-fabled Larry King broadcast, and there are three words you probably never thought you'd hear in sequence, that... When Nan Chalais purchased the book, I'm not sure if they knew what they were going to publish it as. We talked about what to publish it as, and they thought the best thing to do was to publish it as a memoir, close quote. Chalais insisted to Kolhatkar that she didn't think it was a good idea to purposefully distort the truth, and she said Frey's book seemed entirely believable to her when, for example, it depicted him getting on a commercial airliner covered in vomit with a hole in his face. In what little other news there was that wasn't somehow related to James Frey or Nan Talese, the National Book Critics Circle announced that they would be dropping all their various categories for awards next year in favor of one giant category called Nan Fiction. For this year's awards, however, they stuck to the normal categories and announced their following nominees. In the category of Memoir, Big Shocker, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion was nominated along with Istanbul by Orhan Pamuk, Them by Francine de Plessis Gray, Fat Girl by Judith Moore, Two Lives by Vikram Seth. In fiction, it was Europe Central by William T. Volman, the recent winner of the National Book Award. The March by E.L. Doctorow, Veronica by Mary Gateskill, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, and Small Island by Andrea Levy. In general nonfiction, it was Voices from Chernobyl, The Oral History of a Nuclear Disaster by Svetlana Alexievich, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East by Robert Fisk. Eating Stone, Imagination, and the Loss of the Wild by Ellen Malloy. Human Cargo, A Journey Through Among Refugees by Carolyn Moorhead, and Night Draws Near, Iraq's People in the Shadow of America's War by Anthony Shadid. In poetry, it was The Incentive of the Maggot by Ron Slate, Crush by Richard Sicken, The Shout by Simon Armitage, Bent to Earth by Manuel Plaza de Luna, and Refusing Heaven by Jack Gilbert. Finally in the news, writer Christopher Hitchens, a supporter of President Bush's war against Iraq, joined the American Civil Liberties Union in a lawsuit against the president this week. The ACLU announced... It was suing the administration to end its secret, unwarranted surveillance program, and Hitchens, as well as others, such as the environmental group Greenpeace, joined the suit. Explained Hitchens, quote, I have been frankly appalled by the discrepant and contradictory positions taken by the administration in this matter. Close quote. He said it was, quote, of the first importance that we demarcate clearly and immediately, the areas in which our government may or may not treat us as potential enemies. Close quote. The president, meanwhile, announced that he had fired Carl Rove and replaced him with Nantalaise. And that's some of the news from the book world this week. I'm Dennis Johnson.
1: It's Saturday, January 21st, and it's a big week ahead in literary history. Sunday is the 22nd of January, and on that date, in 1788, the great romantic poet George Gordon Lord Byron was born. Known for his wild and dissolute life as much as for his poetry, Byron was the rock star of his day. He was famously described by his scorned lover Lady Caroline Lamb as, quote, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Yet, through his poetry, Byron, along with his friends Shelley and Keats, formed a new movement in writing and in thought, and Romanticism has been a force to contend with ever since. Monday is the 23rd of January, and on that date, in 1783, the French novelist and essayist Marie-Henri Bale, also known as Stendhal, was born in Grenoble, a place he referred to as, quote, the capital of pettiness. A professional soldier in Napoleon's army for most of his life, Stendhal wrote for dozens of periodicals and journals, always under a pseudonym, and he continued that practice into later years, even when he wrote his great masterpieces, the novels The Red and the Black and The Charter House of Parma. Tuesday is the 24th of January, and on that date, in 1862, Melville House author Edith Wharton was born into the privilege and luxury of an old New York family. She was discouraged from her interest in writing by her mother, who forbid her to read contemporary literature. But in 1878, a friend of the family passed along some of her poems to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who championed them for publication. She continued with her writing and maintained an unusual degree of independence, despite marrying Edward Wharton, whom she divorced 30 years later. In 1921, she was the first woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize for her brilliant novel, The Age of Innocence. Wednesday is the 25th of January, and on that date, in 1882, Virginia Woolf was born. One of the central members of the Bloomsbury Group, Woolf was one of the fresh young artists in English literary society between the world wars. With her experimental novels, Mrs. Dalloway, To the Lighthouse, and The Waves, Wolf developed innovative techniques to reveal a character's interior experience and established herself as one of the leading writers of modernism. Thursday is the 26th of January and on that date in 1944 author and essayist Angela Davis was born. In 1970 Davis had the distinction to be the third woman to have ever appeared on the FBI's most wanted list. A communist and a member of the Black Panther Party, Davis's books, like Women, Race, and Class, published in 1982, became instant feminist classics and texts for many classes on sexism, racism, and classism. She currently teaches at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And Friday is the 27th of January, and on that date, in 1302, the great Italian author, Dante Alighieri was exiled from his native Florence when he went afoul of the then current political powers. It was during his exile when he was virtually wandering throughout Italy seeking political asylum that he wrote his masterpiece The Divine Comedy, perhaps the absolute word in political revenge. And finally, Saturday is the 28th of January and on that date in 1939 Irish poet William Butler Yeats died in France. Yeats, who published his first novel, excuse me, his first volume of poetry at 24, devoted much of his creative life to the revival of indigenous Celtic culture. Appointed director of the Abbey Theatre, he was uniquely positioned to champion the development of Irish intellectual life. In 1923 he received the Nobel Prize for Literature, and though he died in France in 1939, Where he was initially buried due to the complexities of wartime, he was reinterred in his native Ireland in 1948. And I'm Valerie Marions, and that's This Week in Literary History.
2: This is Mark Thwaite, managing editor of ReadySteadyBook.com and UK correspondent for Moby Lives Radio. This week from the UK, the news has been fairly slow, but I think these are some of the most interesting items that have caught my eye. Ulysses, the James Joyce classic novel, 1922, that came out, which um, chronicles the, um, the day in the life of Leopold Bloom. In a in a groundbreaking and an astonishing stream of consciousness style, um, has topped the poll of the most valuable works of fiction of the 20th century, according to the poll, and that was published in um, this month's issue of Book and Magazine Collector. The um, first edition, um, the 1922 first edition of Joyce's account of Bloomsday in Dublin, is now worth a hundred grand, um, that's a hundred thousand pounds. And um, so, if anybody's got a copy and don't want to um, don't want to keep it, please do. Let me have it care of ReadySteadyBook.com This week, Carol Ann Duffy won the £10,000 T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize. That's the biggest poetry prize over here in the UK. Um, Duffy's um, collection, Rapture, um, is an extended rhapsody on a love affair. Um, Most of the um, papers have got quite excited about the fact that Carol Ann is gay and um, they seem to be focusing far more on her lesbianism than they are on her poetry. Um, for my money, it's, um, it's not a great collection by Duffy. Um, I would have thought that the uh, anti-war collection from David Harsand, Legion, or Sinead Morrissey's, um, engaged and engaging the state of the prisons, which were both shortlisted for the prize, um, should have won. And This seems more to me like a long service medal for Duffy, who's been um, knocking out critically well-received volumes um, for a good number of years now. Um, It is said that not since Philip Larkin has a living British poet straddled the commercial and critical arenas with such finesse. Um, That's not my view. (laughs) India's National Academy of Letters has urged the Booker Prize-winning author Arundhati Roy to uh, reconsider her decision for rejecting its award. Um, Arundhati Roy um, recently turned down an award from the Sahitya Academy, saying that she could not accept the honour. Because the institution was linked to the government and um, she's opposed government policies in a number of areas um, particularly she has opposed certain dam building activities that would have um, flooded um, out of their homes um, hundreds of villages. Um, a great woman of letters, Arundhati Roy, um, and so she's very very strongly condemned the, the Indian government on a number of matters and um, I think um, should be recognized as um, being very strong in her determination to um, keep up a political standpoint, which is quite difficult for um, some writers of her standing so to do. Um, but she's turned down this, this award, um, and I think she should be congratulated for that. A TV couple, Richard and Judy, who um, I've mentioned before on this slot, they have um, continued their ability to um, boost UK book sales January, a fairly slow month. Um, but according to the latest data from Nielsen Bookscan, revenue through the total consumer market in the seven days leading up to January the 14th was at £24.6 million, um, pounds, that's $47.3 million, and that was up 1.1% on the same week in 2005. Um, Kate Moss's Labyrinth, um, which is one of um, Richard and Judy's book club um, books, which started yesterday is um, doing very well, and that's fifth in the charts, and um, it seems that again, if Richard and Judy say that um, any one of their ten books, because they choose ten books um, a season, any one of their ten books is worth reading, then people will uh, people will buy them. Um, one could just hope that someday Richard and Judy will back somebody really decent. <laughs> Peter Pan has, um, has had a sequel written for it. Geraldine McCoffran has written Peter Pan in Scarlet, the official sequel to J.M. Barrie's Peter Pan, and that's due to be published on October the 5th. Um, Waterstones, um, the book chain over here that um, you will have heard about on a number of occasions because we've been talking about their possible takeover bid of Otika's, um, they have said they already, already look set to become a classic in its own right. The story is set in the 1930s, when Barry's Wendy, who was created in 1904, will be old enough to be a grandmother. Um, The sequel was commissioned by the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital because um, J.M. Barry left all the royalties to Peter Pan to the um, Great Ormond Street Hospital. It was um, something that he thought um, was very important. Uh, But um, because of the way that copyright law works, uh, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan is going to come out of copyright soon and so the money will not be going to Great Ormond Street anymore because anybody can print a copy so if Oxford University Press give all the royalties from this from the new characters in this new book to Great Ormond Street they'll continue to make money out of Peter Pan's legacy so that's why it was written and it's hoped that Peter Pan and Scarlet uh, will be um, a big sellout at Christmas being published October the 5th, end of the year the last um, item this week is that the long list for this year's Independent Foreign Fiction Prize has been announced. Of all the Fiction Prizes in the UK, I think the Independent Newspaper's Foreign Fiction Prize is probably the most interesting. They always attempt to um, bring to our attention books that uh, are not normally uh, big sellers. Books by um, Nobel Prize winners, um, the Hungarian writer Imre Kertesz is um, on the list this year. Um Goncourt and Impact winners um, from France. And it's, it's a great list. Um, Tahar Holun's This Blinding Absence of Light. Stefan Twins' um, Death in Danzig, a, a Polish novel. Um, Mary Darius Sex: White, um, that's a French novel. Uh, Judith Herman's Nothing But, Go- but Ghosts, a German novel. So um, a, worth, um, a worthy list, I think. Far better than um, an awful lot of the um, Fiction Prize lists. And that's um, the thing that I'll leave you with um, today. All the best, and I'll speak to you soon in the week. Bye-bye now.
3: chopped off arm. Don't stick your arm out of the window, mother said. Another car can sneak up behind us and chop it off. Then your father will have to stop, stick the seven teeth in the trunk, and drive you to the hospital. It's not like the parts of your telescope that snap back on. A doctor will have to sew it. You won't be able to wear short sleeves. You won't want anyone to see The stitches.
0: have Christopher Waldrop on the line. Christopher is, the, uh, is a librarian at the Vanderbilt University Library in Nashville, Tennessee. Christopher, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I wanted to check in with you and uh, get an update. Uh, just before the holidays, Moby Liz Radio reported that the Patriot Act was dead. Um, it seems that report was a little precipitate that the uh, that the uh, the Patriot Act lives. Can you give us an update on the status of the Patriot Act?
4: Sure, and I think it was mainly the provisions that cover you know the government's ability to search and seize and search uh, things like library records and and bookstore purchases. That's right. They that, are
0: allowed under or were allowed under the Patriot Act before the holidays, as it stood, to go into a bookstore or a library and demand. Records of the clientele, and the library was not allowed, under threat of prosecution, to tell those clients that they were being surveilled.
4: Exactly, and uh, I, as I understand it, the last thing that has happened is that there has been a that there was an extension. Those were supposed to expire on December 31st, and the current extension, I think, runs through uh, February 3rd. Mm -hmm. Should be the cutoff date. Mm -hmm. So. Basically, that they had originally the Senate agreed to a six-month extension, and the House agreed to an extension that was so much shorter that they I don't think they'll even have time to debate it or
0: mm-hmm.
4: you know, have any kind of meaningful debate on it, or you know, hopefully it will just die then.
0: Does, now, does, does the extension include an extension of those parts of the Act that cover bookstores and libraries?
4: Yes, and I believe it was specifically those provisions that were set to expire on the 31st. So those, those have continued...
0: So we've we've got six months essentially, and then they have to decide whether to extend them again.
4: Well, actually, we've got until as far as I understand. Now we've got until February 3rd. So essentially, there's there's no time. Like I say, no time for a meaningful debate mm-hmm. of any kind.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, the Senate tried to pass a six-month extension, but the House wouldn't even settle for that. So,
0: so sometime before February 3rd, there's likely to be a quick vote on it. Yes. Okay. And, and it's hard to call at this point. But what's your guess?
4: My guess is it probably will be. It may be renewed by a very slim vote,
5: mm-hmm.
4: but hope, hopefully, you know, hopefully that there will be, you know, enough of a of a delay on it that there will be, you know, we can have some meaningful debate. Maybe there will be. Maybe they'll decide to move up the deadline, mm-hmm.
5: or mm-hmm.
4: maybe they'll just realize that there's nothing that you can learn from people's library or records or bookstore purchases. Mm-hmm.
0: That, well, the, the atmosphere in Washington has certainly been uh, changing for the Bush administration and uh, given the, the hubbub and the furor over the, uh, the surveillance charges, the illegal surveillance charges against the president right now. I'm wondering if that might influence the vote the next time around.
4: It might, and I think one of the, one of the things that the... Uh, this, uh, this domestic spying program, as they so politely call it, has revealed is that you know essentially what it seems to come down to is that it it doesn't really matter even if Congress did uh, let these provisions expire, it seems like it doesn't matter.
0: Well, that's true. Unfortunately, it does seem that way. Let's move on to another very happy topic, if we can. Uh, you and I previously have talked, and you've written for Moby Lives uh, when it was uh, a written blog about. The Google Print Program, which after a world of bad press and uh, opposition from the, uh, the publishing community and, and libraries as well, um, has renamed itself the, the Google Book Search Program. You've been looking into a kind of a footnote to the to the Google Book Search story about Google entering into China. What what have you discovered there?
4: Yes, uh, Google is is negotiating, trying to basically trying to create a presence in China, and they've been working with the Chinese government, and you know even even to the point that uh, you know things that the. News sources or you know, information on, say, democracy that the Chinese government considers subversive or or dangerous or doesn't want its citizens reading, you know, Google seems to be willing to allow, you know, allow those sites to be blocked mm-hmm. within China,
5: mm-hmm.
4: which seems to me to to go against the whole Google principle of of. Uh, don't be evil mm-hmm. first of all and I, I think they should, uh, they should. their full motto should be don't be evil to your bottom line
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the real motto it is
4: and also the defenders of the whole google book search program their, their, you know, their rallying cry has been information should be free and if you if you believe that then you believe that information should be free within china as well as everywhere else
0: they meant it should be free to totalitarian governments perhaps e-
4: exactly uh-huh. and it and it's not just it's not just china it's it's basically i think it, it opens kind of a window onto google's business practices that they're willing essentially because china is is so economically powerful
5: mm-hmm.
4: that google basically is is willing to make adjustments to what information is available based on what their investors want and based on what you know big big financial partners want?
0: Mm-hmm. now I, I'm sorry, did I catch you off?
4: Oh, well, I was just going to say that that's one of the things that, that disturbs me about the, the Google book search mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. the, the libraries that are going along with that they're relying on a, on a Google search product mm-hmm. to search those books, and you know, one of the things that Google said originally as part of their when they first announced the launch of Google Print was that they would be making money off of it through content targeted advertising right and that's what really worries me I'm, I'm afraid that Google is going to you know a library a library's idea is that when you do a search you should get the kind of information that you're looking for right and I'm afraid that Google's idea is that you're you know would people go into a library and they use the Google book search, mm-hmm. they're, you know, Google's going to give them the information that, that Google's advertisers want to see mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that Google's investors want to see.
0: So a couple of bad signs for a librarian. Do you see any response to this in, in your community? Are librarians uh, aware of this even, and are they responding to it?
4: I, I don't think they're aware of it at all. Mm-hmm. And so far, I, I think the most ominous sign is not Google but uh, Yahoo Yahoo just cooperated with the Chinese government basically handed over email records
5: mm-hmm.
4: of a man who was uh, a Chinese man who was emailing a a, a pro democracy group in New York
5: mm-hmm.
4: and you know I didn't realize that you could be prosecuted for communicating with someone or you know, communicating with a with a pro democracy group but apparently in China you can and I I think that the fact that uh, that Google is sort of trying to play catch up with Yahoo mm-hmm. Google has made getting into China very, very important. It's one of their top ambitions in Mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. And so I I do think it's an ominous sign, but I I don't know that any librarians are really aware of it,
0: Mm
4: -hmm. and I'm, I'm afraid that if they are, they're they may not have thought through the full implications.
0: Well, how, how have you been following it? I mean, are you reading this in, in trade publications? Um, are, 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 are some librarians talking about it? I mean, I haven't seen a lot of reports about Google in China or Yahoo in China in the mainstream news. How are you keeping up with it?
4: Uh, through whatever news sources I can find. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually, you know, ironically, through the library, we we've subscribed to a, a, a database called ProQuest, mm-hmm. and I'm able to get... You know, ProQuest is very helpful in in allowing me to find some of these news articles, and also the, you know it's through you know through different librarians that I know. Um, the uh, let me just see the one of the first uh, first I I happen to notice because I I've received a lot of periodicals I happen to notice the article on uh, Yahoo helping to prosecute the Chinese dissident in the uh, Foreign Policy Journal.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Well, um, to to back off just a little bit from from Yahoo and Google entering into China, do you have any uh, follow up from our last conversation about just the perception amongst librarians of the whole Google Print or Google Book Search program? Is there any growing uh, sentiment about it within the librarian community?
4: Not that I've been able to tell. I, I think that it's. I think there's very much a feeling of. I, I don't think people's Minds have changed very much. I mm-hmm. think those who were, who, uh, you know, accepted it from the very beginning and, and thought that it was going to be the, the greatest thing since sliced bread mm-hmm. have not changed their minds. Mm-hmm. And those of us who, who were skeptical about it haven't really changed either.
0: It seemed almost as if the, the, the bulk of the librarian community was 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 kind of doing a wait and see what happens with those five libraries that have taken on the. The project with Google. What happens with the uh, the, the the case of the uh, uh, Publishers Association, which is protesting, etc.
4: Right, uh-huh. and that's I think that may be for now the thing to do. Although one of the one of the curious things, you know, libraries are, are like I say are very much about you know open access to information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Google, their search algorithms are you know very proprietary and are in mm-hmm. a very you know closely guarded secret. Right. So. For libraries, it may be that uh, you know they don't. You know, if, if their patrons are not getting the best search results, mm-hmm. libraries may not know mm-hmm. because Google is you know, basically keeping that information under its hat. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Christopher Allen Waldrop of the Vanderbilt University Library in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks once again for coming on Mobile Radio. Thank you very much. I have James Moore on the phone. He is the author of the book Bush's Brain, which came out during the last presidential election. Mr. Moore, welcome to Liz Radio. Good morning. And I would like to ask you about this story I saw you're posting about on the Huffington Post that at about this time last year you discovered you were on something called the no-fly watch list. Can you tell me about, first of all, how you discovered this? What, what happened?
3: I was taking a trip to Ohio to do some research on a new book and I tried to print out my boarding pass online at home and I got an error message. I retried, got another error message and <clears throat> excuse me and went to the airport and tried to use the electronic kiosk and got an error message. It said see agent. I went to the agent, gave her my uh, ticket And she checked the information against my ID, my Texas driver's license. And uh, she said, I'm sorry, sir, you've been placed on the no-fly watch list. And I asked her what that meant. And she gave me an 800 number to call the Travel Services Administration in Washington, which I did.
0: That's a federal office? Yes. Mm -hmm.
3: They are the people who run the check-ins at airports Mm -hmm. and uh, are generally in charge of airport security around the country. Mm -hmm. And I called and I asked why i was on the list and she gave me the only answer she said she was allowed to give me under law which was to say you're on the list because there's something in your background that is similar to someone they're looking for and i said so they're looking for a middle-aged white male with lots of gray hair who's been married for thirty years to the same woman who's never been late on a credit card bill who pays lots and lots of taxes and gets choked up by the first two notes of the national anthem. We need to catch this guy. He sounds dangerous. And she had no sense of humor and uh, said she couldn't give me any more information. And the end result was that uh, um, I'm still on the list.
0: Now, let's back up a little bit. This was how long after the publication of your book, Bush's Brain?
3: It was a while. Uh, um Maybe this this would have been in at the beginning of last year, just about almost exactly a year from now. And that book came out in March of 2003 during the invasion. It's a couple of years, but of course the no-fly watch list was not generated in, until uh, uh, maybe a year or so earlier, year and a half earlier. So it didn't exist for a while. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and this this also occurred after the re-election, and I think that there was a sense of a greater power within the administration so that may have had something to do with it that they were going to step up their scrutiny of individuals they perceived as their enemies mm-hmm.
0: now, as uh, i recall the book did did fairly well and i i seem to also recall you doing a fairly good amount of media during the campaign season um, am i correct in that
3: i am an outspoken critic of the bush administration and i have appeared on national television i write for a number of publications mm-hmm. Uh, criticizing the administration, and um, I, I just uh, do not believe in what they're doing. I think that they are endangering the republic, and uh, and uh, when you combine that with the fact that Mr. Rove has a, a history and a tendency toward vengeance, uh, it raises suspicions as to how I got on the list.
0: Yeah, I should clarify for our listeners that the subtitle of your book, Bush's Brain, is how Karl Rove made George W. Bush president, or presidential? I'm sorry. Um, how would you describe the book, by the way, for our listeners?
3: The book is a critical analysis of Mr. Rove and and the things that he did, the trick, political tricks he played, the, the lack of morality that he has used, the deceptions, and the way he has game game to the political system uh, to create a product and and not a, a policy mm-hmm. that would uh, elect George W. Bush. It's mm-hmm. about his career, and it's about their ascension to
0: uh, power. Okay. Um, so let's go back to the airport. There you are, and you've discovered you're on the no-fly watch list. What does this mean? You're still on the list, I see, from your article in the Huffington Post.
3: Well, I am still on the list. Uh, they have asked. Uh, the The thing that startles me about this is that you Uh, are asked every time that you travel to present three forms of identification to prove you say who you are. I'm Mm -hmm. baffled why, once I prove my citizenship, that I have to keep proving it over and over again. It Mm -hmm. seems like a simple process to to simply take the person off the list once they prove they're not a terrorist and Mm -hmm. they have no terrorist connections, but apparently I have to do that every time I go to the airport. As does everyone on the list and
0: is this every George uh, I'm sorry James Moore in the country everybody with the same name or have they somehow tagged you particularly i
3: have I have gotten uh, I've been contacted by several people with the last name of Moore, but I haven't heard from any James moor's mm-hmm. um, a, a number of people feel that uh, it's a product of myself and Michael Moore uh, <laughs> being high profile critics causing the name Moore to get picked up on these computers, <laughs> but as far as I know, Michael Moore is not on this list. Uh,
0: so you're on the list, and uh, I see also about 80,000 other Americans are on that list. It seems like it's grown uh, t- tremendously in the years since you discovered you were on it.
3: Yeah, it's more than doubled. It was about 35,000 when I discovered I was on it. Uh, uh-huh. And I believe the uh, Swedish government or the Norwegian government recently said that uh, it was working from a list of more than eighty thousand Americans, and they were told they were given that list by the U.S. government mm-hmm. to, to run through their travel system whenever Americans were traveling there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's gotten considerably bigger, and why we don't know, and if if they're checking our backgrounds, we don't know that either. The, mm-hmm. That one of the most uh, daunting things about all of this, to me in any case, is that uh, you're not allowed to really know why you're on the list, and you're not allowed to know. Why you can't be taken off the list? You can, you can file papers. You can, you can sue and complain, but invariably the court rules uh, it's covered under the Patriot Act, the Homeland Security uh, provisions, and uh, in the interest of national security, they don't have to tell you anything, and therefore they do not.
0: Have you pursued it that way yourself? Have you sued anybody? I have anybody? not.
3: I, I, I do not have the time nor the money to hire a lawyer. Mm-hmm to sue the federal government. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm an average uh citizen trying to make a living as a writer and a consultant and uh, it's uh it it's it's not something that I can afford to do. Mm-hmm. I've I've done everything within protocols to that they've asked me that I can mm-hmm. afford to do in mm-hmm. terms of identifying myself and proving my identity, but that has not resulted uh in me being taken off the list. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you heard from any other journalists that have been similarly treated? I have not. I have not huh. what's your next what's your next book going to be about
3: my next book uh, is going to be a sequel to the current book uh, Bush's brain mm-hmm. and
0: uh
3: it will be called the architect carl rove and the politics of power and it will be out uh, mid to late summer of this year and there will be uh, a number of revelations in that book relative to uh, uh carl and washington and the leak and jack abramoff mm-hmm. and uh Uh, Carl's personal background and uh, there's a great deal of material that people are going to find interesting in terms of what's really going on with the people who run this country
0: Well I hope you will still be allowed to travel when that one comes out Um, In the meantime uh, James Moore, the author of Bush's Brain, thank you very much for coming on Mobile's Radio and good luck to you in your travels. Thanks very much Dennis and that's our show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Christopher Alan Waldrop from the Vanderbilt University Library. Thanks, to James Moore, author of the book Bush's Brain. That book, by the way, was published by John A. Wiley & Sons, although you may know them better as Hoboken's other publisher. Thanks, too, to Hal Sturowitz for coming on the program and reading his great poem chopped off on a classic in downtown New York. And thanks, of course, to Mark Thwaite, Managing Editor of ReadySteadyBook.com and Mobilez Radio's UK correspondent. And while I'm dishing out the thanks, thanks to Andrew Steinmetz, our engineer, and to everyone here at Melville House, our editor-slash-reporters, Becky Kramer and Kelly Burdick, as well as publisher Valerie Marions. Come on back next week. We're going to have James Fry on the program who's going to be reviewing St. Augustine's Confessions. You don't want to miss that. In the meantime, don't forget... That whale is out there, man.